into the word we go tonight. I ask a question um, because it is a question. It is a statement posed in the Sermon on the Mount. I ask it as a question because it doesn't make a lot of sense. Blissful are the poor. I say question mark because what poor person would possibly be blissful in that condition? And when you look at the remaining descriptions in the Beatitudes, none of those are the, are the breeding grounds for bliss. And that's the great irony that kicks off the great Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of things I want to discuss as we work through these three chapters. I've told you over the past few weeks that my intention is not to move left to right. It'll feel sometimes like we are doing exactly that tonight. Uh, we're going to go straight into it from the top. But uh, I want to move around because I'm still wrestling with some areas of the sermon. No, that's not true. I'm wrestling with almost all of the areas of the sermon, just to be really honest. Some of which I'm settled on enough that I'm okay with, some of which I'm not settled on to be okay with, and I'm coming to the conclusion that that's kind of how we're supposed to approach the Sermon on the Mount, that, you're, that you will always wrestle with this stuff, not as the source of your salvation. I think we've matured past that. If we haven't, let me just say it one last time of 10,000 times saying it. Your salvation is in Christ. That's secure. Your salvation is as secure as Christ is. Christ stands in front of his Father as the mediator of a better covenant built upon better promises. If Jesus is prone to fail, then your salvation is in trouble. If you have enough faith to believe that Jesus has finished the work, then your salvation is a finished work. You're not a finished work, but your salvation is a finished work. You're perfected in Christ. You're sanctified in Christ. Your justification's in Christ. You're forgiven in Christ. You're a son or a daughter of God in Christ. Nothing you can do about it, as far as I'm concerned. That's Christ's work. Finished work, Christ's work, salvation done deal. Okay, I say that, I say it 10,000th time. I'll probably end up having to say it again. I think everybody in this room, though, is fairly secure in that information. That allows us to take the next step to say this. Just because I have my identity secure, just because I know I'm righteous, I know I'm forgiven, I know I'm sanctified, I know I'm justified, I know I'm one of the sons of God, I know I'm on my way to heaven, I know my salvation is secure. That doesn't mean I got it all figured out. It doesn't mean I don't have some things to wrestle with. It doesn't mean I don't get challenged in the Bible once in a while and that I don't run into some verses that really mess me up because they say to me, here's what it looks like if you knew who you were in the earth and this is how you would treat this person and this is how you would treat that person. And I'm going to run up against that and go, I don't like that. I don't think I should be required to do that. Or I'm really struggling with what that looks like. And that doesn't, my salvation isn't at risk. Okay. So when we go into this and I say things like, Hey, this is a tough passage. We're going to wrestle with this. We don't have to back off of that and say, Oh, it's a finished work. None of these are, we don't have to explain away the toughness. I feel like we've tried to do that particularly in grace circles and finished work circles, we run up against a verse that's tough. We try to explain why it's not so tough. Like you've misunderstood it. If you put it in context, it didn't mean what you think it means. Sometimes that's true, by the way. Sometimes a verse really doesn't mean what we've said it means. And we got to deal with that. And that's okay. But sometimes it means what you think it means. And that's why it's so tough to swallow. Because it means what he said. And that doesn't mean you're lost. It doesn't mean that if you question that, you lose your salvation. If we could just get past that, we could really get into the Word and find some challenging moments and maybe grow a little bit, maybe learn something we didn't know. And so 
Having said that, let's leave that alone. You know you're secure in Christ, but let's dig into what is the most challenging sermon ever preached. If for no other reason, Jesus is the one that preached it. And if you consider the source of any sermon, you're going to be able to pick sermons apart because you're going to know the source. You're going to go, well, I know that guy. I know that lady. I know what's going on in their life. I know the things they struggle with. I know why they said that. We read into it. With Jesus, you can't pick apart the source. So you just take the sermon as coming from the lips of God. You say, he's one with this father. So this is what God would say. This is why we spent last week saying, what's God act like? Well, he acts like this sermon. And that's what he's expecting us to look at. I didn't, I didn't say we're going to hit it. We're going to try, but we're not going to hit it. We're not going to nail this. We're not going to we're not going to do all of this to perfection. That's not the point. It's that if this is what God looks like, and that if I'm a follower of Christ, then this is what will come out as I follow Christ. And if it's not, I don't lose my salvation, but I need to wrestle with why it's not coming out. And I might need to wrestle with what I need to do about it, and that's okay. And if you fail, get up. So you're going to, we're going to, not going to hit these out of the park. That's all right. I think we've spent a little too much time dwelling on, I know we dwell on our own perfection in Christ and therefore we feel like if it's not coming out of me, I don't have to do anything about it. I just sit around and wait for Jesus to bring it out in me. Sermon on the Mount challenges that because it's a boots on the ground kind of message. It says you're going to confront real people. What's it look like when you confront real people? All right. I didn't intend to do that big long intro. That's the way it is. So let me jump in. The Beatitudes. Often thought of as the attitude you should have or how you ought to be. Because you'll hear people say, these are the attitudes you should be. Be attitudes, right? Kind of easy way to remember maybe what they are, but it's also extremely misleading because the list isn't something we aspire to. Jesus doesn't give you the Beatitudes and go, okay, if you jump high enough, you'll get number one, number two. There's eight Beatitudes, and they're not what I wish I could go out and become. Rather, they're a list of those who are finally being recognized. A list of people, of attitudes, conditions, that make up the kingdom of God. I think this was possibly an embarrassing proclamation to the disciples because this is the king, the one they're following as the king in a new kingdom, and he's listing these people first. First words out of his mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit, there's the kingdom. Blessed are mournful, blessed are gentle, blessed are peacemakers, blessed are those of pure in heart. This is, a, this is an odd list of people, but if you'll notice, we're, we're, we're dealing with those on those edges. And so we're going to dig into that list and what it, what it would have meant in that moment, what I think it means for us. Uh, let's deal with that phrase beatitudes, though. It's not the attitude you ought to be. In fact, the English word is literally defined as a state of supreme happiness. Where did we come up with the word beatitude? That's the weird part because this might be a shocker to you. The word beatitude is not in the Bible. All right, so you don't get into the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus goes, hey, here's the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We just call them that. They go, why do we call them the Beatitudes? Not because they're the attitude you're supposed to be. <laughs> because the English word Beatitude is derived from the Latin word Beatus. Beatus is the first word in each verse when you read Matthew 5 in the Latin. And so we have several words that entered the English vernacular that are sourced in the Latin that had no meaning in the English in the way we use them until the Bible. Another very popular one would have to do with rapture. 
an English word that is taken from the Latin word for caught up, which is what Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 4. And since we thought Paul was talking about an escape event, we started inserting the word rapture, which used to mean joy, like caught up in euphoria, which could be what Paul means in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we transliterated that into a word that means caught out literally. All right. And so we kind of did the same thing with Beatitudes. That word beatus, which I can't help but see as beat us, which when you, when you read these from a place of condemnation, it really does sound like he's beating us. Maybe that'll help you remember why we ended up with beatitudes, but you take that Latin word beatus, it gets, you let the generations come down, we end up with the English word beatitude. So just for your own knowledge, that word's not in the Bible, but the concept is of course there, and that's where it comes from in the Latin. Let's work through a few of these. I want to start in Matthew 5, 1. This is really where the Sermon on the Mount starts to get its legs because Jesus is going to go to a mountaintop. And when you get to the end of chapter 7, it's going to show you that he comes down the same mountain, which lets us know that 5, 6, and 7 all take place in one spot. Do they take place in one time? Mm, who knows? But they do in this narrative. And so in Matthew 5, 1, he sees the multitudes. He goes up onto a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. And so the them there becomes both the multitudes and the disciples. So Jesus is not just speaking to 12, he's speaking to everyone that's assembled, what will be the first great open air sermon of his ministry and, and without a doubt the greatest of his ministry. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And thus begins the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount all in one moment, but thus begins the greatest proclamation that had ever been issued. And I, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I'm going to try to prove that tonight. I, I do truly think that Jesus is falling on the side of the ones who've been forgotten about. Here comes a king in his kingdom who falls on the sides of those who are on the margins and the outsides and the edges, and he elevates them first. Now, to help us understand what he's doing exactly, I want to show you a couple words in the Greek that get lost in the English. Now, you know I titled this tonight, Blissful are the Poor? Question mark. Where did I get the word blissful? Well, here. Blessed is from the Greek word makarios. Makarios means blessed, happy, fortunate, prosperous, and blissful. Didn't put that one up there, but it does. Originally used with the connotation, and here's why. In the Greek, originally always used with a connotation not of earthly bliss, but heavenly bliss. Therefore, this was a transcendent kind of happiness. You did not use the Greek word makarios to describe someone who was happy on the earth who was satisfied. If you used Makarios, you were speaking about someone who was euphoric, who was happy in another dimension. You would need the adjective heavenly in front of it. What kind of bliss? Heavenly bliss. Heavenly blessedness. Heavenly happiness. So he's not, it wouldn't make sense to say blessed are the poor, happy are the poor, because the poor would have went, <laughs> no, I'm not happy, I'm poor. But he doesn't say happy are the poor. He says heavenly blissful, blissful are the poor. I read one scholar who said this was as close in, in the Greek, in street Greek to you lucky dog. That Jesus is, is getting about as close as he can to you are, you are the most fortunate. You are luck from another dimension, man. Lucky are those, blessed are those who, and we use this word poor, from the Greek word tochos. Now, it is in the Greek always a poor man or a beggar, 
but it also holds a connotation. When I say these hold a connotation, I mean the context in literature in which they were used in the Greek are surrounded by these connotations. And so it's difficult for us to land on Greek into English because we don't know what they're talking about. You, just, you can't just go word for word. A lot of times it has to be couched within its setting. And so when you used a word like makarios, you always couched it within spiritual or heavenly happiness. When you used a Greek word like tochos, you didn't just use a street beggar. You used a connotation of an abject beggar, someone who cowered, someone who cringed, someone who who was always in a posture in which they were lower than their surroundings. It wasn't just a guy that didn't have money, but just a guy who was down on his luck, needed a couple bucks. It was deeper than that. It was, it was, almost, it was almost akin to homelessness. It was, you weren't just broke, you were broken. So Jesus says, Makarios is this guy. Heavenly bliss belongs to the guy who finds himself poor in spirit. Now here's what I did for a long time because I try to teach with full disclosure because I'm actually trying to teach in a lot of ways the things that I'm working out, not the things I've worked out because I don't think I work out a lot of things anymore. I think I'm working out things. I don't land on a lot of places because the minute I think I've landed, a day passes and I go, hmm, I don't know about that. I wish we could teach that one more time. So wrestling these things out I'll be honest. For a long time, I read poor in spirit and totally spiritualized it and said, if you want the kingdom of heaven, you need to realize that you're broken in your spirit. If you'll realize you're broken spirit, you can have the kingdom of heaven. God will only give it to those of us who realize that we're broken in our spirit. I kind of made it a salvation verse. You want to go to heaven? How? Be broken in spirit. Are you too prideful? Are you too cocky? Are you too full of self and sin? You'll never be poor in spirit because you think you're rich in spirit. And since you think you're rich in spirit, the kingdom doesn't belong to you. So I just kind of used it as a salvation verse. I almost used it as a condemning verse. So if you're a little too self-assured, you're a little too confident, you need broken. But the more I break this down in the Greek, the less I'm convinced I should spiritualize this verse. Because G the only spiritual thing about the verse is that Jesus uses a Greek word for heavenly bliss. That's as spiritual as it gets. So let's don't be guilty of it. Don't over-spiritualize the Beatitudes. Don't look at them as a list of goals you attain. Right? We're not shooting for mournful. We're not shooting for poor in spirit. We either are there or we're not. It's not a list Jesus is giving going, hey guys, try to be this. I'll show you why in a moment because it's within the list that we can prove this. Jesus lists them because they are the overlooked. They are the forgotten. They are the marginalized outsiders. Attention needs called to them. So Jesus moves those in the Beatitudes to the front of the line. Because they've always been in the back of the line. That's where the poor in spirit belong. That's where the merciful belong. That's where the meek belong. That's where the peacemakers belong. That's where those who hunger and thirst after righteousness belong. They're not in the front of the line. They're not in systems of power. They're not running the show. They're getting stepped on. So how does Jesus open his first sermon? By talking about them. This is a flip of the power dynamic, man. He takes the people no one's talking about, moves them to the very front of the line. That he literally takes them, moves them to that front so that we can see what the kingdom looks like. I like to do the opposite. If you want to see what the kingdom of the world looks like, it's easy. Just insert the opposite of every description. And when you do, here's what's incredible. We're going to do that together. When you do that, 
you'll find that Jesus perfectly defines the empire, the power systems of the world, the hierarchical structures of the world, every sort of pyramid we've ever seen of power and authority. He describes it to a T. The Beatitudes is the flipping. Imagine that power pyramid. Strong at the top, everybody else getting stiff. Jesus flips that, puts himself, the base of that structure, and then takes everybody that's in the back of the room and moves them to the front of the room. This is why I said a moment ago, and I can't prove this, but I think maybe I can, but I'll save that. Um, But this is kind of why I feel like the disciples might have heard the opening frame of the Sermon on the Mount and thought, oh, oh boy, I don't know about this. Because I, I, I kind of feel like that's what we would do. You know, like we finally think we got our guy. You know, he's the one. So far, so good. This is his first big public moment. He's going to kind of lay out his agenda. And the first thing out of his mouth is the kingdom that I came to promote. I mean, guys have been telling you, kingdom's at hand. Kingdom's at hand. This is what John was preaching. This is what Jesus was preaching. Remember we talked about this last week. John comes preaching, repent. Jesus comes preaching, receive. Right? John goes, repent, kings at hand. Jesus comes in behind him and go, repent, kings at hand. Here it is. I'm I'm anointed. Here I am. Come get it. What do you need? Here's my first sermon. Here's what my kingdom looks like. And everybody stands at attention. You get excited. The king's going to make his proclamation. He goes, heavenly bliss belongs to those who are poor in spirit. For they are what the kingdom is made up of. And it's not what I want to (laughs) hear. It's not the opening line I want of my Jesus. And so the the flip begins at the top. And it ought to stun us if we're paying attention. It ought to stun us at the flip because it shows us that the kingdom isn't going to look like the kingdoms of this world. So if you want to see what the kingdom looks like, read the Beatitudes. If you want to see what the kingdoms of the world currently look like, what they looked like in Jesus' day, what they look like in our day, and what they'll look like in any day that it's the kingdoms of this visible world, then take the Beatitudes and reverse them. Reverse the main clause of the Beatitude, and you'll see the kingdoms of the world. So we're going to do two things. We're going to look at each Beatitude. I'm not going to go into detail because we're actually, over the next few weeks, going to go into more detail over some of the others. Tonight's kind of poor in spirit. But we'll look at them lay out a case for them, and we'll flip it, all right? And the flip's just going to be in our own mind. I didn't rewrite it. You don't have to rewrite it. You, you'll be able to see the, the visible power structures of the world. So start in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, there's the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't, again, don't spiritualize. The fact that it's poor in spirit doesn't mean their spirit is poor, although whose isn't? It's blissful are the poor. Where are they blissful? In their spirit. Blissful are the poor in their spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The power structures or the systems of the world would say, blessed are the rich in spirit. That's what the kingdom of heaven is made up of. True bliss comes in having lots of money. True bliss comes in having lots of possessions. True bliss comes in knowing where the next check is and knowing where the retirement is and knowing where you're going on vacation. Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But that's the way the world defines true bliss. You want to get it all solved? Then put everything in that right financial category, that right financial column. And if you want power, well, that's a good place to start too because you don't ever have power in the structures of the world where you don't have some money. 
In fact, usually the more you have, the more power sort of commiserate with money. If you want to know where the power really lies, then try to find the powerful that don't have any in the systems of the world. Show the powerful that have no money. And so the very first flip then is the most obvious one. Because the empires of the world run off of that. All right, here's another one. Four. Blissful, heavenly bliss belongs to those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the systems of, in the kingdom of heaven, comfort is promised to those who mourn, those who are crushed, those who are broken, whereas in the kingdoms of this earth, there's no sympathy to those that mourn. In fact, we admire those who are too strong to mourn, who are too tough to be crushed, who do not have to, to show and display their emotions. So that's the systems of this world. Jesus is just flipping that dynamic. Five, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. This one's going to be a fun one when we get to five because there's a lot to say about meek. One thing you can say is that in the English vernacular, it's very close to the word gentle. And there's hardly any, there's hardly any environment in the systems of the world where gentleness is applauded. <laughs> hardly any structure in the system, in the kingdom of man, where gentleness is a virtue. In the kingdom, it's way up near the top of the list. Jesus talks about the meek, the gentle. They'll get an inheritance that is in the earth. And there's also some indications in the Greek of, of meek, and we'll get into that. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there's some indications in the meek of those who have no inheritance are promised an inheritance. And let me say this. In the systems of the world, if you have no inheritance, no ownership, you don't have any power. Right? If you don't have your name on something... You don't have anything. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the meek, because that they'll receive an inheritance that is not of this earth. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Um, extreme hunger and extreme thirst isn't celebrated in any system of power in the world. But also the word righteousness is the same word as the Greek word for justice. And so one of the things that we'll, we're going to want to look at when we walk through the Sermon on the Mount is how much has our modern and I am intentionally getting a little ahead of myself here, but how much has our modern insistence on individual righteousness as the keystone of Christian preaching infiltrated the way we read the New Testament or vice versa? And what I mean by that is when we talk about righteousness, we always talk about it individually. The New Testament always translates it as righteous. It never translates it as justice, even though in the Greek, it's the same word. So why is it that the New Testament ignores justice and prefers righteousness. I'm not sure the New Testament does. I think our English translation does. But for purposes of the Beatitudes, don't think about this as an individual righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for individual. Think of this as justice. In the kingdom, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice because justice is going to be given to them. Okay? And in our culture of the world, if you talk too much about justice, you, could, you can be perceived as whining or having fallen on the wrong side of the political aisle. Jesus talks about justice almost out of the gate in his great sermon. I'm not staying on these long, and that's for a reason. Seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, if you show too much mercy in the systems of the world, the fear is that you're going to get dominated. So you better temper your mercy, because mercy can make you look super weak. 
And so if you want to be feared, then don't show much mercy. Um, because mercy is the currency of the naive in the systems of the world. And so it's easy to get knocked over pretty fast. Jesus promises that in the kingdom they're going to be listened to. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Well, seeing God is the key to the Christian experience. Revelation is the key to walking in faith in Christ. The pure in heart is something that is established in Christ and who he is. Some of these I'm only spending so much time on because there's a lot, a lot, a lot I'm going to say as we unfold, as we get to these. But the power systems of the world don't care very much for your heart, but they care a whole lot for your head. All right. Intelligence rules. Smarts, knowledge, wisdom, education, top the ladder. Jesus flips it. In fact, and, and again, I, I this, is, this will be in the, in the week we deal with this, but you don't, you don't walk in a revelation of who God is because of wisdom and, and earthly intelligence. And I know this sounds like I'm taking an odd turn here, but this needs said more and more. And I used to, didn't even say stuff like this, but I think we got to get back to straight up promoting faith over trying to convince people through apologetics and intelligence and historicity. We just gotta, we just gotta introduce people to faith because everybody wants to prove everything. We're in a prove it culture. All right. And we've been there for about 250 years plus in the enlightenment era for, for nearly 300, probably for 300 years. We've been in a age of reason, age of enlightenment, prove it through science, prove it through intelligence, prove it through reasoning and deduction. And then faith is sort of mocked because anything you believe that can't be deduced through science, you must be some form of weak person if you believe that. And listen, I, there's no way around this, guys. When you chose to follow Jesus, and this, this, this might run you off in following Jesus. You chose to follow Jesus. You chose to follow a man who you believe died and then rose. Okay, let's just say it the way it is. He literally rose from the dead and then disappeared into the realm of the spirit and then reappeared through the invisible Holy Spirit whom we trust lives in our hearts that connects us to the creator God. Well, you say it like that. I mean, what did I sign up for? But we, gotta get, we have to get back to that because the reality is, is there's no true inward transformation that comes by just reasoning our way into transformation. This is a faith. We can call Christianity a religion. This is a faith. We are truly believers in the man Christ Jesus. And so this isn't, an, this isn't a religion of the head. I don't mean we, we're stupid and that we don't look for intelligence and that we don't reason. Of course. But we don't walk into a relationship with the invisible God through reason. We do it through faith. No backing off of that. I don't know any other way to say it. That's Christianity. It's a, faith, it's, a, it's a faith walk. I choose to believe in him because I believe he believes in me. I love him because he first loved me, etc., etc. It's the invisible. So is the pure in heart. And they get promoted. They get pushed up in the line. You don't get pushed up in the line if you're pure in heart in the world. That heart, give me head, not heart. Give me intelligence, not feeling. Give me wisdom and degrees and education and some miles on the tires. Don't give me 
blind faith. I love the fact that people love to throw blind in front of faith as if faith isn't based on anything, but we know better. All right, nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, they should be called the sons of God. Um, this, is, this is the most controversial, in my opinion, of all of Jesus' blessings. It may be except for poor in spirit, and you're going to see why in a minute, because that's where we're going to land tonight, is poor in spirit. Um, We're we in a culture that has put peacemaking at the end of a gun. That if you are strong enough, you can create peace if you have to, even through violence. We even have guns called peacemakers which might be the ultimate insult to the Sermon on the Mount. A word Jesus coined gets used to describe a weapon. It seems to me that it isn't what Jesus means in Matthew 5 when he goes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And we'll explore it more when we get there. But the point of, of this exercise is flip these to watch the power structures of the world. So... The peacemakers are not promoted in the societies and the kingdoms of the earth. The opposite of peacemaking is promoted in the societies of the earth. And so Jesus is already being quite controversial. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Bless, blissful are persecuted people? Hard to imagine how you could be persecuted and blissful because that for those belong the kingdom of heaven. 11. Now watch the pronoun change. For the first time in our passage, the word you enters the vernacular. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. They say all kinds of evil against you. Here's what I meant earlier when I said Jesus isn't giving you a list of things to jump up to. Because he's saying this, this, this is what the kingdom looks like. And then he turns to his disciples and to the crowd and says, blessed are you. Notice he didn't say, blessed are those of you who are poor. Blessed are those of you who mourn. Blessed are those of you who are peacemakers. It was just a general statement. Here's what the kingdom looks like. But when he wants to talk directly to his disciples and thus to the reader, blessed are you when they revile and persecute. Look, here's what's going to happen to you, Peter, James, John, Philip, Andrew. This is what's going to happen to you. People are going to cut you down and persecute you, and they're going to say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Verse 12. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad, great your reward in heaven, so they persecute the prophets who were before you. If you guys buy in to the kingdom I'm selling, here's what's going to happen to you. If you believe, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those that mourn, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those that hunger. If you buy that and you jump into this kingdom, you're not going to be popular, you're going to be reviled, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be cut down, but rejoice and be exceeding glad, great your reward in heaven. This is the stuff that propelled the early church forward. That every shot that was sent against them, they went, it's okay. Jesus said, blessed are, are those who are reviled and persecuted. We can rejoice because we are in him, he is in us. And if you can grab hold of that, then whatever you face in the systems of this world, you can handle because it's been promised to you that, you might, that you're going to face this and you might face that. And it's okay because that's what happens to the kingdom. Can you see how Jesus has presented a kingdom in which the front of the line are the people who've been in the back of the line in the kingdoms of the world? And Jesus said, if you believe this, the kingdoms of this world are going to turn on you. And they're not always going to like you. And they're going to cut you down. They're going to persecute you. And they're going to speak evil against you. And that's okay. You can rejoice because now you look like me. And in effect, Jesus is saying, are you ready? Let's go. And it's why sometimes I get to the end of the Beatitudes when I read the Sermon on the Mount and I'm just ready to stop. 
And I, I just say, if the kingdom is made up of this, and Jesus told me that if I buy into that, things are not always going to go well for me. Why is it not going to go well for me? Because it's not going to look like the world. How closely do I want to follow Jesus? How closely, how much do I want to embrace this as my life? And so, guys, this is why I wrestle. And my wrestling has not gotten me to walk away from him. It's gotten me to lean deeper into this relationship and say, I'm smitten. I'm enamored, man. I want to see what that world looks like. I want to see what the world looks like. We're blissful or the poor. We're the people that mourn, go to the front of the line. Where peacemaking is cool. I'd like to see what it looks like in a world where people hunger and thirst after justice. And justice happens. I wonder what it would look like to live in a world where people that mourn are actually comforted instead of crushed. Is this possible? It is if you believe in Jesus. This is the great challenge. This is why I've said to you, we've, we have to be a little less prone to individualize and a little more prone not just to take Jesus in, just me and Jesus got our own thing going, but to take Jesus in so that Jesus is what comes out. And what does that look like as we work through this? So I want to ask this question. What? I'm getting back to blessed are the poor. All right, let's land this. Blessed are the poor. Why? I've read the Gospels as long as I've been able to read. I was raised in a home where I heard Jesus before I heard my name. And I'm not being super zealous and spiritual. It's just true. Um, Dad's a pastor. Mom was a Sunday school teacher. Dad was an evangelist. I was in church all the time. Um, that doesn't mean I knew Jesus. It meant I knew the name Jesus. <laughs> it's a big difference. And I've had to be reintroduced to Jesus about a thousand times in my life. It's why I find it quite almost humorous when people talk about the second coming of Jesus. I think I've had a couple hundred encounters with Jesus. What's this second coming stuff? The reality is, is every revelation you have of Jesus is you and him on the road to Damascus. Some of them at the end of a lot of breaking, a lot of foolishness, sometimes a lot of sin. I'm also shocked at how little we think he can do to people who are sinning. Some of my greatest revelations of Jesus have come in the middle of sin, where Jesus is standing right there looking at you, not casting a spotlight in condemnation, just sort of holding out that nail-scarred hand saying, when you're done, here I am. And so I can't be convinced of anything but Jesus, all right? That it's, it's where I am in the journey. It's why I'm so obsessed with him. And it's why I find it to be the heartbeat of Christianity, not the stuff. The stuff's fine. I have less offense over the stuff than I've ever had before. Too. You want to be liturgical, high church, robe-wearing choir, stained glass windows, celebrate the Christian calendar? Awesome. You want to bemoan all of that, cut it down, hate it, demand it be done your way? Whatever. Give me Jesus. You can find him in all of that, by the way. And you'll miss him in a lot of that both sides of that aisle. So the more I read the Gospels, the more I'm excited about Jesus, but I'm also really been turning something over. I can say this to you guys. I can say this to those watching because people that don't like me, they don't make it this far in the videos anyway. <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day. I went, 
you know, man, the criticism's kind of backed off. I'm like, well, you've been at this a while. The people who criticize have stopped, stopped writing anything a long, long time ago. They're not still watching. Um, so I'll say this to you, and you won't judge me. If you do, that's on you. Um, what's Jesus' problem with the poor and the rich? He's obsessed with rich people and poor people. He talks about it all the time. I'm not exaggerating. It's in every gospel. He's got a problem with rich people. And he celebrates or challenges constantly socioeconomic status. Jesus rarely, please hear me on this. I can't mean this more than I mean. He rarely talks about sin. He almost never talks about the afterlife. He constantly talks about socioeconomic stuff. Constantly. Hunger, poor, wealthy, building big barns, tearing them. It's it's mind-boggling to the point that if you just read the words in red, you would, and you walked, if you put it through an algorithm in a computer, and you like fed all the words in red in and went, what's the main message Jesus preaches? Somewhere in there, you'd talk about poor people and rich people. And you'd go, gosh, is it that big of a deal in the ministry of Jesus? And so I've been wrestling with that. I've really been working on that. So I go, what's the deal? I mean, he opens the Sermon on the Mount with blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the king. There it is. Right out of the gate, he has to talk about the poor. It's the very first thing on his mind and the very first words out of his mouth. So I want to give you a little smattering of these. This is by no means the exhaustive list. In fact, it was so long I had to pick and choose. So I thought, well, they'll just be there all night. And we can't do that to them. So I just want to give you a few, all right? You're going to know most of these. You've heard these stories. And some of them, I promise you, you've probably forgotten about because they don't even get preached because we frankly don't really know what to do with some of them because he talks so much about it and I know I might be stretching it here, but just stretch with me. He talks so much about it, it's almost embarrassing. <laughs> Frankly. It's like, could you tell us what heaven looks like? I mean, that'd be more fun. How about a parable on that instead of these other things? Here's, a, here's some examples. Luke 4.18, Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor Sent me to heal the brokenhearted, liberty of the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty of the person. Yeah, I flew through the last four. I flew through it for a reason. I want you to see this. Spirit of the Lord's upon me because he has anointed me to do what? What's the very first words out of his mouth when the anointing hits him? To preach the gospel to the poor. Same thing that leads the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of God. Spirit of the Lord's upon me. Anoint me. Preach the gospel to the poor. And the next one. Um, Matthew 25. Here's a parable. The king is going to say to the people on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's been a kingdom prepared for us from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When were you thirsty and we gave you something to drink? When did we see that you were a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Because they knew they had never seen him this way. They've never had this kind of relationship with God. You're not that way. And then, of course, his response in verse 40, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. What's the point? If you... When you 
fed and clothed and gave. You were not feeding and clothing and giving to them. You were feeding and clothing and giving to me. That's flipped, man. That's, we consider the king the highest end of the spectrum. Jesus said, this king is the lowest end. What you do to the least is exactly what you're doing to me. Mark 10, 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him. This is the rich young ruler. Remember this guy comes to Jesus and goes, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He's got everything in the world. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor. And you're going to have treasure in heaven. Come take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And so the story of the rich young ruler, the one thing the young man needs to do is lay down the one thing that defines him. It's all of his wealth. Is Jesus promoting the man to be poor? Well, we at least got to wrestle with the fact that he's promoting the man to give up on the one thing that matters the most to him, which is his wealth and his riches. And the man can't do it. Um, Luke 14. Look at this. He says to the people who invited him to dinner, when you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and you be repaid. 13. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. You're going to be blessed because they can't repay you because you're going to be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Quite simple language. Well, this doesn't get preached very often right here. I, I can't tell you the last time I heard that preached on a Sunday morning in a church. It's like the next time you do something, don't do it for the people that do good to you. Do it for the people that can't do anything good for you. Well, we don't ever talk about that because that's a tough one to wrestle with. You go, how does that work in my day-to-day -day life? And this is, this is what I mean. This is where every time you turn around, Jesus is telling these stories about the rich and the poor, and you go, gosh, it's getting kind of old. You know, move on to something else. He doesn't. In fact, I didn't even put the, a couple of these down for you. Remember this one. There was a rich man who fared sumptuously every day, wore fine linen. One day he died. And it happened to be at the same time that he died, a poor man, a beggar who sat outside of his gate, died as well. And the poor man went to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man went to hell. And Jesus gives this whole story, and has to describe the man as poor, by the way, in which the poor man receives in the next life everything that the rich man was receiving in this life. Why does Jesus give that story? Or why does he tell the story about a man who one time had barns in which he held all of his crops, and then one day he decided his barns wasn't big enough. So he said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And God said, you fool, tonight your soul shall be required of you. All you're thinking about doing with your money is building bigger barns, and you aren't taking care of the one thing that really matters. You go, that's not fair. I mean, you got enough money to have a bigger house or a bigger barn. Bless God, get yourself a bigger barn. That's what it's all about, having the money. But yet you still have to wrestle with why Jesus tells the story in the first place. Or how about this? Matthew chapter 11. John sends disciples to Jesus and goes, are you the one or do we look for somebody else? And Jesus says in John eleven four, 4, go tell John the things which you hear and you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why is he tacked that in there at the end? Look at that. Look at all those miracles. Go tell John all this stuff. Oh, and by the way, before you get done, when you get to John, tell him that the poor have the gospel. Now, I worked with that for a long time. I thought, what's that last part even matter? How's that going to impress John? Why'd you have to throw that in? I mean, you already got the blind can see, the lame can walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the deaf can hear. That's good enough, right? Well, you got to throw in the poor have the gospel preached to them. I think it's because John knows his Old Testament. And what I mean by that is John knows what we're supposed to be looking for. And what we're supposed to be looking for is someone to put quite bluntly, 
Who cares? We're not just supposed to be looking for a Jesus that heals. We're supposed to be looking for a Jesus that cares. Look at Jeremiah 22. Here's the prophecy. Jeremiah 22, 1. This Old Testament, man. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah. You who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong. Do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed do this thing, then shall enter the gates of this house riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. And just before Jesus went to the cross, he looked at the leaders of Israel and he said, the blood of all the prophets is going to be held upon this generation and your house is going to be left unto you desolate. And he pointed at the temple. Why is your house going to be left to you desolate? Here's the answer. Go back a screen. Because you didn't do this. You didn't deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. You did violence to the stranger. You didn't care for the fatherless. You ignored the widow. And you shed innocent blood. And he goes, that's why the house is going to be taken from you. So when Jesus came, here's what he came to do. To fix this. This is why it's dangerous to land on the individual righteousness message. Here's the way I said that. I worked through this today. I don't know if I landed where I want to or not. In our salvation preaching, we emphasize individual righteousness and identity. While this is important, we do not need the kingdom of God to ensure that. Okay? So what I mean by that is you don't need the kingdom of God to show up in order to be forgiven of your sins. Jesus could just forgive you of your sins. Why does he have to bring the kingdom? Who cares about the kingdom, right? It's kingdom matter. He can forgive you of your sins, make you individual sons. You can do all that without the kingdom. You don't need the arrival of the kingdom to ensure that. The kingdom is an alternate way of living that flips the power structure of the world. That's why the Sermon on the Mount opens so bizarre. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the mourned. Blessed are the, the hurting. Blessed are the marginalized. Blessed are the wounded. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the thirsty. Everybody at the back of the line gets to move to the front of the line. The kingdom of God doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world. If all it was was forgiving you of your sins, giving you personal identity, you don't need the kingdom. Jesus can forgive sins by speaking forgiveness of sins. He could call us all sons and call himself a father. But the kingdom isn't so that you'll get saved. The kingdom is so the earth will be saved from the rule of violence and wickedness. The kingdom accelerates in the man Christ Jesus so that in the kingdom, bliss belongs to the poor and the mournful and the gentle and those hungry for justice and the merciful and the pure in heart and those who work towards peace. Because in the systems of the world, every single one of these things will get you run over. Plain and simple. Every one of them will get you run over. None of the, you won't survive in the kingdoms of the world through this. And so Jesus comes and says, repent, the kingdom's at hand. Here's what it looks like. Guys, here's why we have to wrestle with the Sermon on the Mount. Because our first allegiance is not to the kingdoms of this world. And as followers of Christ, then, we become sensitive to all of this. I had two ways to end tonight. And I'm going to choose the one that's not on the screen. Okay? I have a set of scriptures to work with. 
And something in me, when, when I did it today, it was as if I heard the Holy Spirit say, just put that on pause. We'll, we'll see where to land. I, I talk a lot, we talk a lot in New Covenant circles about how you needed blood sacrifice in the Old Testament for repentance of sins. So Jesus came to be the ultimate blood sacrifice in the New Testament to forgive you of your sins. What rarely enters my vernacular and probably doesn't enter a lot of people's is that when you get to the end of the Old Testament, Israel's busted up. Kingdom's divided. The diaspora has begun. They're living all over the empire. Ark of the Covenant's been stolen. Presence of God's gone. Jesus says your house left you desolate. And Jesus walks into the middle of that. And that's not because people kept breaking the Ten Commandments. We have put so much emphasis on individual sin in the church. People come in, we, we preach individual sin. Lying, adultery, anger, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, murder. And yet, the reason Israel isn't in the land at the end of the Old Testament is not because they commit adultery or because they lie. God gave them blood sacrifice for that. You got individual stuff? Go, go to the temple. Offer up a lamb. The reason that Israel scattered and dispersed and doesn't have land and there's no spirit in the temple is because they haven't taken care of the fatherless and the widow and the stranger and they've shed innocent blood. In other words, they didn't take care of those that couldn't take care of themselves. And that was their one job. God told them when they get in the promised land, if you don't remember that you are a stranger in Egypt and treat the stranger right, I'm going to take this from you. You're going to lose this land. They'd get it and they'd lose it. Then they'd get it and then they'd lose it. Then they'd get it and then they'd... You ever read the Old Testament and wonder why this is happening? Because they get it because God will go, okay, maybe they learned their lesson. And they didn't learn their lesson. You go, oh, well, they kept committing adultery. No, no, no. It wasn't individual sins. It was the corporate sin of abandoning the stranger and neglecting the fatherless and forgetting about the orphans and not taking care of the poor. And you get to the book of Isaiah and God goes, why are you guys button land up against one another? He goes, you've got land right up next to your neighbor's property. He goes, you're not supposed to have it right up next to your neighbor's property. There's supposed to be a space in the middle so that the poor have a place to live. But no, you're putting it right up to the edge. Why are you gleaning the corners of your fields? You're not supposed to glean the corners of your fields. What are the people that don't own a field going to do? They're supposed to be harvesting the edges of your fields. If you harvest all the way to the corner and you own right up next to your neighbor's land, I mean, you can call it property rights or whatever you want to call it. But at some point you got to go, when are we going to take care of those that can't take care of themselves? And God goes, okay, punishment, boom, you're out of the land. And then you go through these big long lulls in the Old Testament where prophets are going, get it right, get it right. God's going to give vengeance. God's going to come in judgment. And then they get it right and they'd take care of stuff and God would deliver them from the Philistines and God would deliver them from the Assyrians and God would deliver them from the Babylonians. And then came Rome. Boom! Iron fist drops on them. And then comes Jesus into the middle of that and they go, here it is. God's doing it again. He's going to break the back of Caesar. And Jesus comes along and goes, no, I'm not. And you want to know why? Because you haven't taken care of the poor and the mourning and the comfortless and the guy thirsty for justice and the pure in heart and the peacemaker. And if you're not going to take care of them, I am. And he goes, this is dad's kingdom. 
And when he stands in front of Pontius Pilate, and Pilate goes, are you a king? And Jesus goes, you said it. But if it was of this world, my servants would fight. My kingdom's not of this world because you wouldn't even recognize the kind of kingdom I'm leading. This isn't about just an individual. This has always been about our neighbor. See, nothing changed in the new covenant in regards to your neighbor. It's always been about let's spread the love of the kingdom into the ends of the earth. Now, this is why I told you at the top, you're individuals, you're saved, man. You're righteous. You're forgiven. You're sons. You're just. Congratulations. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount's about. I think one of the reasons we've struggled, I'm I'm, going to shut up. This is it. I think one of the reasons we, and by we I mean me, have struggled with the Sermon on the Mount in the message of grace is because we take every individual challenge as a challenge against the stability of our salvation. So if Jesus tells us what we ought to do, we go, well, if we don't do it, we're going to go to hell. You go, wait, 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 you missed it. If you don't do it, you're already in hell. Let me say that again. It isn't a matter if you don't do it, you're going to hell. If you don't do it, you're already in hell. That's what the systems of this world look like. You want to bring a little heaven into the hell? Flip the thing. And that'll help you, because trust me, there's some rough ones. Be thou perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. Man strikes you on the cheek, turn to him your other one. Man asks you to carry the load a mile, carry it too. Man, man takes, sues you for your coat, give him your cloak also. Oh, boy. If he sues me for my coat, give him my cloak also. Well, what, what's going to happen if that's the way we live in this world? They go, this is the wrestling of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not for my individual salvation. It's because the world around me, the system around me is already hell. How do I insert what heaven looks like into it? All right, a lot of rambling, a lot of talking. Probably not a lot of landing. That's okay. We keep working. We keep wrestling. Blissful or the poor? I think when you can see it through the eyes of Jesus, you go, yeah, finally. Blissful or the poor. They finally get recognized. Only in Christ, but they finally get recognized. Father, I don't even know how to end. I don't know how to end this lesson. I don't know if we answer the question, blissful or the poor. Try. I read you say that in the Beatitudes, and I struggle. Struggle with it so much, I tried to spiritualize it, act like I'm the poor, so that at least the kingdom can be mine. I don't know if I'm right on that, Father. What I really think more and more is that you're just trying to get me to realize that the kingdom doesn't look like anything I've ever experienced, and that if I can live out of that, it's not a matter of trying to understand everything that you say, land on everything that you say, but wrestle with it so that I realize that what your kingdom looks like is nothing that I'm used to. I think finally, Father, tonight we landed somewhere near approximating an answer, and that is, this isn't about me. If I don't do it, I go to hell. It's about if I don't do it, I'm already there. What can I do then, Father, to affect the kingdoms of this earth but look like, live like, and love like the kingdom of heaven? Help us all do that in Jesus' name. Amen.